A brother is born for adversity, but there is a friend who sticks closer, closer than a brother. Who is that friend? His name is Jesus. His name is Jesus. I don't know what your week has been like. I don't know how the, uh, the summer has begun for you. Maybe it's begun with the bing. Maybe it's begun with um, the wrong kind of bing. <laughs> but, uh, but this, this morning, uh, we are going to start a, a new series called Dealing with Difficulties. Now, I realize that, uh, you know, none of us here deals with difficulties, so this may not necessarily be relevant for you, uh, but maybe for some, no, come on now, let's be real, right? Hey, friends, we live in a sin-ridden world, and difficulty, struggle, trauma, big and small, it's common to all of us. And so, uh, you know, this is actually, this kind of came out from, from those worship surveys that you guys filled out, uh, a few suggestions of this or of that. And um, I, I realized that, that at times maybe uh, some of the ideas that we focus on, it's hard to apply it to our everyday lives. And so uh, this, this month, what we're going to look at is dealing with difficulties. How do we do that from a biblical perspective? Let's be honest, dealing with difficulties is really the subject of Scripture. Uh, I don't know if you've realized that. Um, you know, the, the, the chosen nation, uh, we, all, we often call them the children of what? Israel. Did you realize that Israel was a name that was given to a man named Jacob? And it was given to this man after he had a wrestling match with God? Israel literally means wrestles with God, yet prevails. Do you realize that God's chosen people are people who wrestle? God's chosen people are people who, who struggle, yet overcome. And so the story of Scripture is the story of people who struggle. There are lots of people. <laughs> oh man, if you haven't read through the stories of the Bible, there are people who struggle. You think you're the only one dealing with uh, family dysfunction? Think again. <laughs> you think you're the only one dealing with addiction or, or destructive behavior? Think again. You think you're the only one struggling in your relationships? Think again. The story of Scripture is the story of how God deals with people through their struggles, not necessarily taking struggles out of the way, but walking with people through their struggles. And so this morning we're starting, Dealing with Difficulties, Part 1. And as we get that started, let's, uh, let's bow our heads together for a word of prayer. Father in heaven, we thank you that that simple song, that wisdom proverb, there is a friend who sticks closer than a brother. God, the truth is that uh, our adversity, our difficulty, makes us feel as though we're walking all by ourselves. But we thank you that today we can trust that there is a God who walks with us. Lord, we're praying that you would lead us through the power of your Holy Spirit, that you would guide us into all truth, that you would give us a sense of how, how to deal with difficulties in our lives. So please instruct us, inspire us, in Jesus' saving name, let the family say, Amen. Amen. Do you? All right. <laughs> if you don't hear that noise, don't worry about it. All right. <laughs> Woo. Okay. So we're going to, uh, let's, go, let's go to the very beginning, okay? Very beginning. We've been here the last few weeks uh, talking about the delight of God's Sabbath. Um, and even last week when the adventurers led us through just this creation theme, uh, we're going to go to the beginning again, Genesis. Except this time we're going to Genesis chapter 3. 
Genesis chapter 3. This is where difficulty gets started. All right? Genesis chapter 3. And we're going to take a look at how, uh, throughout this series, we're going to take a look at how difficulty even began, you know, where, where it all came from. Um, but more importantly, we're going to look at how to navigate through all of that. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. All right. <clears throat> So if you're in Genesis, this is the first book of the Bible, Genesis chapter 3, when you're there, say amen. Okay? Uh, if you found the table of contents, you've gone a little bit too far. <laughs> Genesis chapter 3. And let's just, let's just be real. Genesis chapter 3 comes right after Genesis chapter 2, right? Genesis 1 and 2, we have the very beginning of creation. God said it, it was, and it was good. You remember that from last week? God said it, it was, and it was good. He saw all that he made, and it was very good. In Genesis chapter 2, what you find is that it almost rehearses or slows down. It slows down that last day of creation because it shows how God formed Adam out of the dust of the ground, and it wasn't until later that day that God actually created Eve. Uh, in Genesis chapter 2, what you find is that God is not just the God of powerful creation, but in Genesis chapter 2, you find that God is the God of intimate relation. Very interestingly, in Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, there's a new title that is used to refer to God. In Genesis chapter 2, verse 4, it says, This is the history of the heavens and the earth when they were created in the day that the who that the Lord God made the heaven and, excuse me, made the earth and the heavens. That word, Lord, is taken from the Hebrew word Yahweh. Have you heard that before? Yahweh. That's the first time that the title is used in scripture. Genesis chapter 1, it's only Elohim. It's only God. And then in Genesis chapter 2, there's this Yahweh Elohim, the Lord God. Yahweh is significant because it's a covenant name. It's a name of committed relationship. Here in Genesis chapter 2, it's taking a new angle. This is the God of committed relationship. And so this chapter, it's filled with relational details, such as the fact that, that God actually gives a test of relational loyalty. That test of relational loyalty, it was in the form of a tree called the knowledge of good and evil, okay? All of these relational details, and then towards the end of Genesis chapter 2, God sees something... <laughs> That is not good. Do you remember what that was? Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. Oh, okay, maybe we haven't read this in a while. Okay, let's take a look. Genesis chapter 2, verse 18. When you're there, say amen. It says, And the Lord God, Yahweh Elohim, said, It is not good that man should be alone. In all the things that are good, there is something that God realizes that is not good. It's not good that man should be alone. All this relational detail is building up to a point that God is one that not just creates things in perfect metaphysical, biological order. He creates things in perfect relational order. And so what he does is he causes Adam to sleep, creates a woman from his rib, and when he brings them together, he makes them one. A union of one. And then we come to Genesis chapter 3 where everything that was one and good unravels. Genesis chapter 3, beginning in verse 1, the Bible says, I'm reading from the New King James, it says, Now the serpent was more cunning than any beast of the field, which the Lord God had made. And he said to the woman, Has God indeed said, 
you shall not eat of every tree of the garden. This insinuation is driving a wedge between that relational God and his relational creation. Has God said that you can't eat of, every, of any tree of the garden? Is that, is that what God said, yes or no? No. He said, hey, you got it all. There's just this one, right? And the devil likes to flip the script and say that, hey, God is holding back everything from you. Have you noticed that the devil tries to just say, whoa, God is so restrictive. He doesn't want me to have any fun. No, no, no. God has given you abundant life. The only thing that he's keeping from you are those things that would rob you of abundant life. He continues, verse 2, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat the fruit of the trees of the garden, but of the fruit of the tree which is in the midst of the garden, God has said, you shall not eat it, nor shall you touch it, lest you die. Then the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. A direct contradiction to the word of God. For God knows that in the day you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing good and evil. Again, the insinuation is that God is holding something back from you. He doesn't want you to have the best life ever. And notice that in verse 6, it says, So when the woman saw that the tree was what? Good. Does that phrase sound familiar? Saw that it was good? Who, who was the one that saw that it was good? Do you understand what's happening here? There's a subtle shift. God was the one who saw all things good. And now Eve is putting herself in the place of God. When she saw that it was good, that it was pleasing to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. They sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. Friends, this is where good becomes not so good. What we think is good is in reality the thing that's going to lead to our ruin. This is where difficulties begin. Why do I say that? Because in the very next verse, what happens? God comes into the midst of the garden. Watch what happens. They heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden, the one that they had intimate communion with, the one that they saw face to face. They had evening walks together in the garden, and suddenly God is coming for that evening walk, and they're running. The first time they feel fear. It all started as a result of saying, let me be God. Let me do it. In the cool of the day, and Adam and his wife hid themselves from the presence of the Lord God among the trees of the garden. Verse 9, then the Lord God called to Adam and said to him, where are you? It's funny when God asks questions, huh? <laughs> Is it because God left his GPS at home? No, no. He's asking the question because Adam and Eve didn't know where they were. God was asking a question, not for his sake, but for our sake. Oh, this is where I am. Verse 10, so he said, I heard your voice in the garden, and I was afraid. First time fear is ever felt or expressed, because I was naked and I hid myself. And he said, who told you that you were naked? Have you eaten from the tree of which I commanded that you should not eat? So here, the immediate impact of this choice to put self in the place of God is that our, 
our vertical relationship with God Almighty has been destroyed. Our vertical relationship with God has now been characterized more by fear rather than faith. It's, it's a shame rather than a security. And so the, the results of this continue. It says, then the man said, the woman whom you gave to be with me, she gave me of the tree and I ate. The blame game begins in the Garden of Eden. <laughs> this script is never repeated, right? I mean, this never happens in our kitchen or dining rooms. Or <clears throat> but the subtle insinuation again, now it's coming from Adam, the woman you gave to be with me. Not just blaming the woman, but blaming the God who created this. If you just, I needed that rib. <laughs> I should have kept that rib to my, No. The woman whom you gave to be with me. And then verse 13, the Lord God said to the woman, what is this you have done? The woman said, the serpent deceived me and I ate. Now all of these are factual. It's true, right? But the fact is that they weren't taking ownership of their, of their actions and responsibility. And the serpent deceived me and I ate. So the Lord God said to the serpent, because you have done this, you are cursed more than all cattle, more than every beast of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat dust all the days of your life. Now in verse 15, he's addressing that adversary, the enemy who had taken possession of that serpent and had been responsible for this deception. And he says, I will put enmity between you, Satan, and the woman. Enmity is that feeling between enemies, that hostility that just makes you uh, turn the other way. Just can't handle that. That's what enmity is. He says, I'm going to put enmity between you and the woman. So here's this couple, Adam and Eve, created perfect in harmonious relationship with God, but they have now chosen the rebellious side of Satan. Satan is probably, you know, polishing his fingernails, feeling like he's hot stuff because... He has just usurped the authority of humanity. He has now become the prince of this world. Ah, they're on my side. You see? And God is saying, you think you've won. I'm going to put enmity between you and humanity. He's going to put a resistance that even though we've sided with the rebellion, God is going to put a resistance there. And so... He gives this great promise. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. This is an anticipation of the one, Jesus Christ, who on the hill called Golgotha, which means place of the skull, would by dying put death to death. Do you follow that? That through death he put death to death. <laughs> I don't know if that's a tongue twister or not. But anyways, the point is this, that Jesus would bruise Satan's head and in the process be bruised himself. And so here, where it all began, the impact of the fall is that there is a relational rub, both in our vertical relationship with God and in our horizontal relationship with other people. And what happens as a result is that there are several curses, curses that come from verse, uh, verse 16 and onward, and these curses impact the very things that actually uh, make us in the image of God. You remember when God created Adam and Eve in Genesis chapter 1, verse 27, he says, let us make man in our image, right? Uh, in the image of God, he created them, male and female, he created them. And that oneness was supposed to reflect God. 
That, that, uh, and then he said, be fruitful and multiply. That ability to procreate, that was to reflect God. And suddenly, all of the things that are supposed to reflect God are now directly changed. The DNA of humanity has been changed forever. It says, I will greatly multiply your sorrow and your conception. In pain you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be for your husband, and he shall rule over you. So the, 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 the blessing of procreation has turned to be something painful. The, the relational oneness has now, there's, there's an imbalance of power there. And then he says to Adam, because you have heeded the voice of your wife and have eaten from the tree of which I commanded you, saying, you shall not eat of it. Cursed is the ground for your sake. In toil you shall eat of it all the days of your life. You see, productivity and taking care of the created order, that was also something that God told Adam and Eve. You shall have dominion over the fish of the sea, over the beasts of the field, and all of these things. You shall take care of this place. But now even their work is feeling the curse. All of these things that reflect the image of God, and sometimes people say, wow, was God just being super harsh here? I mean, it was just a tree. So what, why, why the curses? I believe that the, the essential thing here is that God didn't necessarily desire these things, but he allowed these things. Why? Because pain, this might sound masochistic, pain is actually a positive thing. When your body experiences pain, it's telling you that something is wrong. When your body has something wrong, but you cease to feel pain, is that a good situation or a bad situation? That's a bad situation. It's that check engine light that tells you that something is amiss. These curses are to be a reminder that, wait a minute, wait a minute, wait a minute. This is not right. And so, as we see this unfolding here, just from the very beginning, after God had created everything good, quickly things unravel. What are the realities about our difficulties that you and I can take from here? I'm going to suggest that we find three things just as we kind of move through from, from here. There are three realities, three, uh, three, I guess, yeah, new realities here that are pointed out from, from this account here in Genesis chapter 3. First of all, reality number one, we find the real source of our difficulties, okay? If you're taking notes, this is reality number one. The real source of our difficulties, it's not that God created our difficulties, the real source is when we chose to be God ourselves. The real source of our difficulties is buying into the lie of Satan that God is not who he says he is. The real source of our difficulties is a mistrust of God and his word. Let this think, sink in for just a second. It's not just true in Genesis 3, it's true in every generation since then. Behind the struggles that you and I face, whether it's relational struggles, financial struggles, physical struggles, whatever your struggles, behind that, it started with a mistrust of God. Think about it. The most difficult times we experience are the times when we're uncertain that God is going to see us through. Think about the most difficult times that you've experienced and the times in which you've really, really struggled through that. Those are the times when you've wondered, is God really with me? Can I really trust God? Yes. Amen. That's right. 
if, and I would suggest this, if mistrust of God and overtrust in ourselves is behind the difficulties, then a genuine trust in God and a healthy self-distrust would actually be behind victory. Oh, wait, let me say that again. Let me say that again. Okay, okay. So if distrust of God is really the foundation of our difficulties, then wouldn't it be true that a genuine trust of God is the foundation of our victories? And this is what the New Testament teaches us. When Paul says, I have fought the good fight, he calls it something. 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 12, he says, I have fought the good fight of faith. Trust. That's the real fight. Am I going to trust God or not? And in 1 John, actually, can you just hold a finger here in Genesis chapter 3 and go with me to 1 John. This is powerful. If you don't have this underlined in your Bible, I, I would suggest doing it. 1 John chapter 5, not the Gospel of John. 1 John, it's near Revelation. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. If mistrust of God is the foundation of our difficulties, then trust in God is the foundation of our victories. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4 and 5. When you're there, say, I found it. Okay. 1 John chapter 5. 1 John chapter 5, verse 4. The Bible says, For whatever is born of God overcomes the world. And this is the victory that has overcome the world. Tell it to me. Tell it to me. What is it? Our faith. Do you realize that faith is the victory? Why? Because unfaith and unbelief was the source of our weakness and our failure. Mistrust of God led to the unraveling and the difficulties ensued. Trusting in God will not necessarily remove those difficulties, but it will heal us so that we can walk through them. In verse 5, the Bible says, He who overcomes the world... Oh, who is he who overcomes the world, but he who believes that Jesus is the Son of God? Faith is the victory. Are you fighting the good fight of faith? You might be fighting a fight, but you might not be fighting the good fight. How many of you have ever been caught in that situation? You're fighting this battle, this struggle, this difficulty. Oh, I can't get rid. Maybe it's because you're fighting the struggle and not fighting to trust God. I've been there. <laughs> and this is something that, I don't know, maybe you just need to chew on for a little bit. But where in your struggle are you? The real source of it, the real source, if you're writing down reality number one, the real source is mistrust of God. Mistrust of God. Reality number two. Reality number two is that we can identify the enemy and his schemes. The enemy's schemes. Okay, so reality number one, we're identifying the real source. Reality number two, we're identifying the schemes of the enemy. Okay? And this is the enemy. It's really the enemy behind it. His name is Satan. Here in Genesis chapter 3, he's, uh, he's uh, taking the shape of a serpent, which is why in Revelation chapter 12, you find him called, you know, it's, it's the dragon, right? But that dragon is known as the devil and Satan, that serpent of old who deceives the whole world. You see, the scheme of the enemy is to work through subtle deception. That's why he's using the snake, the serpent. Uh, that, that title of him as the, the ancient serpent of old, it's related to his deceptive schemes, his deceptive tactics. But I would also say that in that same chapter of Revelation 12, he's not just pictured as a serpent, slithery and subtle, 
but he's also pictured as a dragon, right? Godzilla, kind of uh, ogre-like. He's just super aggressive. And so Satan and his scheme is not just, not just subtlety, but he will often use aggression, uh, ways to overpower. That's why in 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8, maybe you know this one, it says that the devil is like a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. There is an enemy behind all of this, you know? I mean, we've identified the source. The source is a mistrust of God, but the enemy who's scheming that way is an enemy that will scheme through subtle deception and overpowering aggression to cause us to mistrust God. Okay, so here we we see this in Genesis chapter 3. We're able to put our difficulties in perspective. It's not just that I struggle with this. It's not just that an issue over here or a person over there. There are serious sources and there are real powers that are trying to lead us to a mistrust of God. Okay, so reality number one, the real source, it's our mistrust of God. Reality number two, there's an enemy who is scheming scheming through subtle deception, and sometimes scheming through overpowering aggression. All right. Reality number three, however, is that God has a solution. Amen. Okay? (laughs) Reality number three, God has a solution. So we've seen there's a real source. It's our mistrust of God. There's an enemy who schemes. His name is Satan. He's known as a serpent who's subtle. He's also known as a dragon who's overpowering. But reality number three, there is a God who has solutions. Amen. Go with me back to Genesis chapter 3. Well, how does God respond? How does God respond when the curses enter into human experience? When difficulties overwhelm us? How does God respond in the midst of the thorns, in the midst of the struggles? What does God do? In Genesis chapter 3, I would say that the very first solution that God offers is that Adam and Eve leave. What? <laughs> How is exiting the garden, denying access to the tree of life, how is that a solution? Read it. It's in verse 22. It says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like one of us to know good and evil, and now lest he put out his hand and take also of the tree of life and eat and live forever. Verse 23. Therefore the Lord God sent him out of the garden to till the ground from which he was taken. In verse 22, there's a rationale behind the action in verse 23. Verse 23, the action is, get out of here. Was it because God was kicking the kids out to the curb? Is that what's going on? No. The rationale behind it is so that evil and sin and all of its curses would not be eternally perpetuated. In other words, solution A is to put a finite timeline on our difficulties. Do you hear that this morning? You may be walking through a midst of dry bones. Your valley may just feel hot and heavy, like you're the only one there, but praise the Lord, there's a light at the end of the tunnel. When God says, Adam and Eve, please leave, he's saying, your difficulties will not last forever. He's denying access to the tree of life. Why? Because he knows that evil will not be perpetuated. That's his plan. That's his solution A. That may seem odd. (laughs) That may seem ironic. But that's why Paul, in 2 Corinthians 4.16, 
he says something very powerful. He says, therefore, we do not lose heart. Though our outward man is decaying day by day, yet inwardly we are being renewed. And he says something very interesting. He says, for our light and momentary affliction is working for us a far greater weight of eternal glory. What? Paul was stoned, persecuted, chased out of town, left for dead, etc., etc., etc. And he says, yeah, these light and momentary afflictions. How can he say that? Because he knows that it's not forever. He says, therefore, we fix our eyes on the things that are not seen, because the things that are seen are temporary. The things that are unseen, that's eternal. In the grand scheme of things, God is escorting the couple out. Why? Because he's putting finite timelines on our difficulties. You may feel like your difficulties have lasted decades, but it's not eternity. Amen. (laughs) You may feel like this physical uh, incapacity, this limitation of yours that you just, uh, you've been dealing with it all your life. But it's not all of eternal life. This is a light momentary affliction that is working for you a far greater weight of eternal glory. Wow, if you're taking notes, write that one down. 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verses 16 through 18. Solution B, so if God has another solution, there is, there is actually another solution here. In Genesis chapter 3, we kind of bypassed it, but we did it on purpose, that before God escorts the couple out of the garden, what does he do with them? What does he do? He gives them clothes. Yeah. Verse 21. Let's take a look. Also for Adam and his wife, the Lord God made tunics. Maybe your Bible says garments. The Lord God made tunics of skin and clothed them. There are times where our difficulties feel us leaving insecure questioning our identity, our identity, allowing us to feel shame, guilt, feeling exposed. promise here is that God clothes that. In the midst of your difficulties, God has a solution, and that solution will actually clothe you. That solution will actually cover you. But notice what he covers the couple with. What does he clothe them with? Skin. Well, Whose skin? Do you see what happens here? You know, God told them, hey, in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. Adam and Eve didn't die that day, but something did die that day. Before God escorted this couple out to say, hey, you know, these difficulties of yours, they shall not last forever, how could they be sure that it wouldn't last forever? By demonstrating that he would personally and deeply identify with your pain so that through his pain, we would be healed from our pain. This is incredible. (laughs) That in that animal sacrifice was a pointer to the cross. These skins were a pointer to the fact that God would personally identify with our pain. In in Isaiah chapter 60, oh, you need to see this. Isaiah 63, hold your finger here. Go to Isaiah 63. Isaiah 63, uh, verse 9. Isaiah is a little bit more than halfway through the Bible, so it's past the Psalms, past Proverbs. Isaiah 63, verse 9. 
When you found it, say, I found it. All right, you, need to, you guys need to highlight this one in your Bible if you haven't yet. Isaiah 63, verse 9. The Bible says, In all their affliction, he was afflicted. And the angel of his presence saved them in his love and in his pity. He redeemed them and he bore them and carried them all the days of old. The skins were appointed to the fact that, hey, look, this God is not just ignoring your pain. This God will actually feel your pain. In our affliction, he is afflicted. And he will redeem us and carry us through that. And then in Isaiah 53, just a few chapters earlier, a few chapters to the left, just flip a few pages. Isaiah 53, verse 5. It's not just that God would come down and, and wallow in our mess and say, yes, yes, let's cry together. No, no, no. What would happen? Verse 5. Isaiah 53, verse 5. It says, But he was wounded for our transgressions. He was bruised for our iniquities. The chastisement for our peace was upon him. And by... His stripes, we are healed. It's not just that God is uh, amazingly sympathetic. Yes, praise God that he is, that in our affliction he is afflicted, but it's through his pain that we become healed. As Adam and Eve were escorted out of the garden, they were given, yes, they were covered, they were clothed, they were secured, but they were clothed with a pointer to the fact that Jesus would pay it all. The undoing of life's curses begins at the cross. Let me say it again. The undoing of life's curses begins at the cross. Earlier this week, I was reading a book by a professor uh, at Union College. His name is Chris Blake. He writes a book called Searching for a God to Love. And this is just kind of his personal reflection on that very same reality. He says, Whenever I am tempted to complain of injustice, I look to the ultimate injustice of God's Son, hanging on a cross. At the foot of the cross is where virtually every question of mine about God gets answered. Watch Jesus on Calvary, and you know that God cares. God understands we are not abandoned. He continues, he says, God paid on the cross the mortgage payments of suffering. Yet he and his children suffer every second. Make no mistake, just as Jesus was lashed with the soldier's whip, so also our heavenly parent is lashed with our tears. Isaiah contends, in all their affliction, he was afflicted. It's quoting again from Isaiah 63. Friends, you and I cannot underestimate the power of the gospel to resolve not just our moral mess, not just our need for forgiveness, but the power of the gospel to actually resolve our emotional distress, our physical maladies, our financial instabilities. Jesus paid for all of that. I don't know if we realize that, that sometimes we think to the, to the cross, and that, oh yeah, that's, that's for my forgiveness. Yes, it's your for, for, for your forgiveness, but it's for your complete and entire healing. It encompasses all of these things. That's why in Revelation chapter 12, verse 11, when it's talking about the, the dragon and his, his rage against God's people, in Revelation 12, 11, it talks about people who can overcome. It says, we overcome by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of our testimony. Do you realize that song is very powerful? There's power in the blood. 
And it's not just about the forensic uh, uh, forgiveness of our moral debt. It's about our whole person. Jesus is a savior, not just in part, but in whole. So simple question today, in the face of life's difficulties, what does God want to clothe you and I with? In the face of life's difficulties, what will he clothe you with? Maybe it's not necessarily a garment of skin, but it's a pointer to the fact that he identifies with your pain and has paid for it all. I imagine Adam and Eve, is there, you know, just, uh, I mean, can you imagine what it's like to live for 900 plus years, to be able to look back and see that garden that you used to have? And then to see the degeneration of, of the, you know, consequent uh, ancestors or descendants of yours, to see how all of that, just, just the immense guilt. I imagine Adam and Eve just like, you know, this, this hard ground that's not giving me pr- uh, productivity, uh, this, this painful child rearing, all, all this stuff that are reminders of a curse. But then they look to their, their clothes and they realize that God is acquainted with their grief and that by his stripes we are healed. What what is your difficulty? What is your pressing struggle? Maybe it's not singular. (laughs) What are your difficulties? What are your pressing struggles? Are they decisions? Discontent? Disappointed ambitions, busyness and balance, guilt or shame, worry for someone else's struggles. Maybe it's emotional distress, material need, financial insecurity, physical suffering, relational drama, hurt and moral, excuse me, relational drama, moral temptation, spiritual integrity and unfaithfulness. What are your struggles today? I'm sure we could preach sermons and Bible studies on each of these individually. (laughs) In Genesis chapter 3, all those struggles began. And in Genesis chapter 3, all God's solutions were revealed. It's going to be for a finite time, and I'm going to pay it all. God has a solution. Do you believe that this morning? God actually does. So if we believe that, then let's look to Calvary. If we believe that, let's look to Calvary and be clothed with his garments. I don't know if you still have your Bible open. I still have mine open to Isaiah 53. There is actually a really powerful promise. I was just reading in my devotions uh, earlier this week in chapter 61. Can you find that? Isaiah chapter 61. I just want to notice something that happens here. The people that Isaiah is giving these prophecies to, they have been through it. Oh, man. They are wondering if God has left them off the radar, if all their emails are going to junk mail. They're they're just like, what in the world is going on? In Isaiah chapter 61, there's this promise of the Spirit of the Lord coming upon them. And in verse 3, there is something that's being proclaimed. In verse 3, Isaiah 61 verse 3, when you're there, say amen. It says, to console those who mourn in Zion, to give them beauty for ashes, the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness. Do you realize, friends, that in your difficulties, God knows when you're mourning. 
God knows when you feel like you've got ashes, that there's nothing left of all your dreams and hopes. God knows when you've got the spirit of heaviness, and he wants to give you beauty for those ashes. He wants to give you the oil of joy, the oil of gladness. He wants to give you a garment of praise for your spirit of heaviness. What does God want to clothe you with in your difficulty? You know what your difficulties are right now, your struggles, your, your struggles for someone else's struggles. God wants to give you clothes. <laughs> Clothes that will give you a reason to praise him. What are those clothes made of? They're made of the blood of the lamb. Later on in the chapter, same chapter, Isaiah 61, verse 10. I love this clothing motif. It says here in verse 10, I will greatly rejoice in the Lord. My soul shall be joyful in my God. Why? For he has clothed me with the garments of salvation. He has covered me with the robe of of righteousness as a bridegroom decks himself with ornaments and as a bride adorns herself with her jewels god is decorating us clothing us making us look spotless (laughs) where your difficulties have left you feeling shameful and naked god wants to clothe you with garments of salvation and praise god wants to give you his robe of righteousness today i don't know what you're you know the valley that you're walking through You know the difficulties that are leaving you high and dry and feeling as though you're all alone. God wants to give you a promise today that those difficulties are not going to last forever. How do you know that? Because when we look to Calvary, Jesus paid it all. I don't know if that sounds oversimplistic to you, but there's power in the gospel. It's the power of God to save. I imagine the children of Israel, they were bitten by snakes. Numbers chapter 1 tells the story. They were bitten by fiery snakes. They were complaining about this and that. And they didn't know what to do. People were dying left and right. And Moses was given instruction. Make a brazen serpent. Put it on a pole. And when people look to that snake, then they'll live. What? The snakes were the very reason for us being hurt in the first place. It didn't make sense to them. But by looking in faith, they would live. Were they to look to their glorified sin? No, they were to look in faith to the one who would become sin for us, that we might be made the righteousness of God. It was a symbol of Jesus. It was a symbol of Jesus. By faith, we are healed. Faith is, the, is that, maybe it sounds oversimplistic. I, I, I realize that. But to the children of Israel who actually looked, they lived. Friends, I don't know what your difficulties are. When you look to Jesus, you can live. When you look to the, the ransom paid at Calvary, you can live. Does that promise that your difficulties are going to be suddenly and miraculously mar- removed from you? No. But it does give you garments of praise and salvation to walk through those difficulties. We can trust that we are not alone. Friends, uh, again, whatever your difficulties, I just want to appeal to you. Look to Jesus. Look to Jesus and let your difficulties be put in perspective of the cross. Jesus has paid it all. Is that your desire this morning? Yeah? Amen. Amen. Let's pray together. Father, there are, there are hurts among us. 
There are wounds that we have no idea what to do with. There are issues that we don't have solutions to, but we praise you that in, in the beginning, you had it all mapped out. Thank you, Father, for putting a definite timeline on the difficulties we face today. I pray, Father, that through the power of Jesus' blood, you would give us hope, you would give us courage, you would give us faith to just keep walking this step and the next step and then the next step. So, Lord, I pray that those who wait on the Lord should renew their strength today. I pray, God, that as we look to Jesus, we would live. Thank you for your goodness, for your grace. In Jesus' name, amen. For those of you who desire special prayer, I want to just encourage you. Come, come join us here in, in the committee room, and um, let's continue to look and live. Amen. <clears throat>